ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. The issue of brumbies and what to do with them has long been a contentious topic. Aerial culling of wild horses hasn't been allowed in New South Wales for more than 20 years, but that's now set to change. As Brumby numbers continue to grow, the state government has made the call to resume aerial shooting. As the Environment Minister, who has the responsibility of looking after national parks, I can't stand by and say that the status quo is adequate because the harm and damage that's happening to that park is too great. This comes as welcome news to some, but for Brumby advocates, they say it's terrible news. I'm Alex Hyman and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wadjuk Country, Perth. We start in Queensland where bushfires continue to burn with an extreme or high fire danger across much of the state. In the southeast, in the Tara region, it's thought at least 32 homes and more than a dozen other structures have been destroyed, while hundreds of evacuees nervously wait to be told when they can return to their properties. Our reporter Toby Loftus has been in Tara. Uh, He's now back in Toowoomba. Toby, very hot conditions this week across much of Queensland. Very difficult for firefighters in these uh, these tricky conditions, especially if they persist. What is the situation like there in south-east Queensland today? Look, Alex, it was very, very hot and windy in, uh, I guess, south-east Queensland earlier in the week. And then throughout the past few days, while the temperatures have cooled down a bit, it's still very dry and windy. And so it's creating these, I guess, perfect conditions, firefighters are saying, for this fire to continue spreading and for spot fires to appear and grow larger. So it's been a very, very difficult time with the two fire, the two major fires that have been burning, one at Milmerran earlier in the week and the one at Tara, which is started around the same time as the Milmerran fire, but is still burning and is still uh, going strong. And there's also been another fire that started yesterday near Dolby and another one today at Mooney, which is between sort of, if you think of a triangle between Dolby, Toowoomba and Tara, that's where Mooney is. And that's quite a serious one at the moment too. That's on at a leave immediately level. So there's all of these conditions, I guess, that are converging to create the perfect weather for these fires. What has been the impact of the fires so far? This Tara fire has been the most devastating one so far in terms of its impact on people and property. It's absolutely tragic. The one man died earlier this week when he he stayed at his property near Tara to try and defend it. Uh, that police are preparing a report for the coroner in relation to that incident. In a separate incident, a woman who was evacuating suffered a cardiac arrest. Now, that wasn't in relation to the fire itself, but it was happening during that process. As of this morning, authorities are saying there's 32 homes that have been destroyed by the blaze and about 17 sheds have also been destroyed. Now, I was speaking with local fire controllers on the ground this morning and they told me that while this number 
uh, while they, that number of 32 is official, they are expecting it to increase once they can get more crews to the various areas where they haven't been able to get yet be, to survey the damage because it's just been too dangerous and conditions have been too dangerous for them to get there. So this tar fire, sizable damage, uh, 300 odd people had to evacuate from Tara. So it's not Tara, the town itself, where there's the fire. It's the rural blocks uh, a bit north of the town. So very close to where the uh, Weambilla police shooting happened last year. That's where this fire is. And Toby, what are authorities telling residents in those affected areas? So this morning, firefighters were thinking that at Tara and Weambilla, some residents might be able to return home today but that was very this was a incredible moment in a press conference actually this morning where the fire controller was telling us that they're about to reopen that they're about to let residents in but he was interrupted by one of his colleagues who told him that that decision had changed because the situation was just becoming a little bit more hairy. And so there is that leave immediately warning still in place for Tara and we and Billa. And then just down the road in Mooney, there's that leave immediately warning for that separate fire too. So it's still quite a volatile situation in those localities. And finally, Toby, how is the forecast looking for the next few days? The cool front that came through this morning is set to continue. So overnight temperatures in Tara especially are going to get down to that 9, 10 degree mark over the weekend. But the maximum temperatures are going to get up to the high 20s. So 28 tomorrow, 29 on Sunday. And But unfortunately, it's still going to be windy and there's still a 0% chance of rain over the next few days now. And it's still, so it's still going to be windy. So it's still going to present challenging conditions for firefighters. Now, Tuesday is also a bit of a concern because it's going to be dry and those temperatures are going to reach a top of 37 degrees again at this stage. So it's going to be a tense time for firefighters. Absolutely. We really appreciate you giving us some time on what must have been a very busy day. Toby Loftus, thanks so much for speaking to Australia Wide. Thanks, Alex. ABC Australia Wide. And you are with me, Alex Hyman. It's great to have your company. In New South Wales, the debate around Brumby culling has been reignited today following an announcement that aerial shooting will resume in Kosciuszko National Park. The practice has been banned in the state for more than two decades, but the government says it's a necessary measure because the area's entire ecosystem is under threat from booming Brumby numbers. From New South Wales, Victor Petrovich filed this report. Kosciuszko National Park holds a special place in the hearts of many, with unique alpine environments, endangered species and symbols of an Australia gone by. But the population of wild horses or brumbies that are cherished by some are exploding in population and having a profound impact on the delicate ecosystem. What to do about this has been a divisive issue in New South Wales for decades and the Labor government elected earlier this year is now moving forward with the plan to shoot the horses from the air. Penny Sharp is the New South Wales Environment Minister. Horses are beautiful creatures that people love. I completely understand that. It brings me no pleasure to stand here and say that we are going to have to cull more of them. But the point here is that we do have to do this and if we're going to do it we need to do it in the most humane way. 
The government is amending the 2021 Wild Horse Management Plan to allow aerial shooting to be added as a control measure for the horses in New South Wales, alongside others like trapping and rehoming. The plan has a mandated target to reduce Brumby numbers in the park to 3,000 by mid-2027, with current estimates putting the population around 19,000. Penny Sharp says it hasn't been an easy decision, but one that is necessary to save the park's ecosystem. I just cannot stand by as the Environment Minister who has the responsibility of looking after national parks and the flora and fauna that are within them and the ecosystems that are there and the cultural heritage, particularly Aboriginal cultural heritage within those areas. I can't stand by and say that the status quo is adequate because the harm and damage that's happening to that park is too great. After putting the proposal out for public comment, the government received more than 11,000 submissions, 87% of which related to aerial shooting. Of those, the minister says 82% were in support of the change. There's long been a vocal group advocating the heritage value of the horses who've raised concerns over culling and other control measures. I'm really saddened. It's terrible for us and even worse for the Brumbies. Jill Pickering is the president of the Australian Brumby Alliance and worries that horses could suffer if the aerial shooters are not accurate enough to make an instant kill. After the aerial shooting, when we go out, we will find shattered hindquarters, bullets everywhere and the odd horse still alive. So no amount of saying, with all due respect to Penny Sharp, that it's going to be humane can cut it with us. Advocates like Jill recall the last time horses were shot from the air in New South Wales in the year 2000 at Guy Fawkes National Park. Over three days that October, 606 horses were shot, with some surviving for days afterwards. Although an independent review found the shooting was done humanely, it caused a public backlash and resulted in the ban of aerial shooting in New South Wales that was only lifted today. The change comes after a Senate inquiry recommended earlier this month that New South Wales reintroduce aerial shooting. Wiradjuri man Richard Swain is the Indigenous Ambassador for the Invasive Species Council. He was a vocal critic of former Deputy Premier John Barillaro's 2018 Brumby Bill, which sought to protect the heritage value of the horses. Taking people through the part of the Snowy River that's within National Park, you'd expect to see native animals and you were seeing only horses. You would see 300 horses and two kangaroos on, on an 80 kilometre journey was embarrassing. The Aboriginal people of the Monero have always called for the removal of the horses and our voice hasn't been heard over the settler colonial heritage. The Invasive Species Council's advocacy manager Jack Goff welcomed today's announcement. We've had years of dithering, delay and in some instances outright obstruction from governments which has meant that the numbers are out of control. So we will need to see many thousands of feral horses removed every year to get down to that 3,000 figure. That will not be possible without the use of aerial shooting. That's Advocacy Manager for the Invasive Species Council, Jack Goff, ending that report by Victor Petrovich in New South Wales. To the town of Shark Bay now on the coast of WA, where community members are joining efforts to help revitalise the language of the local Mulgana people. The work is being led by Mulgana woman Kim Oakley, whose great-grandmother was one of the last fluent speakers of the language. From WA's Northwest Coast, reporter Rosemary Murphy has this story. Do I have someone gay to actually ask the whole group if we're good? (laughs) 
in the Shark Bay Town Hall, a group of about 30 people are getting the feel for some new words. They're part of a beginner's workshop that's giving the community the chance to learn the language of the Morgana people. For Ingana Mulgana elder Bob Dory, it's something he was prevented from learning as a child. When I was young, that was a long time ago, I was born in 44, I asked my mum to, because she was born here and grandmother was born over um, Williamire. Grandmother, you know, grandmother and grandmother, all that country. And I asked mum to teach me language. I had two languages. My grandfather's Ingeta. And, and mum said, um, I can't teach you language because I'm not allowed to. I said, why? She said, if I teach you, they'll take you away and the rest of the kids and we'll never see you again. And we'll go to jail. That's why I didn't mean to learn my language, but I'm learning now. The workshop has been organised by Mulgana woman Kim Oakley, who's passionate about sharing the knowledge. So I just thought it was about time to come back and do some language revitalisation and work with community to really get it back in the community and and restore it because it's so important uh, that we continue to use language or we do lose it. And it's a part of our culture. It's right, it's embedded through everything that we do when we sit, look around here in this beautiful country, you know. She started the Mulgana language program at the local school. The seven years that I did it here was the best seven years of my life, getting to teach the younger ones and um, see them use it. Like, you know, I come into town and, and the kids go, you know, they, they shout out Mulgana words like Jurana and it's just amazing just to hear them say it and, you know, some of them sing head, shoulders, knees and toes in language, so it's, it's um, just amazing. For Kim Oakley, learning with the language was challenging and personal and involved listening to tapes of her great-grandmother who had died. Yeah, it was just important that I carried on her legacy, really, um, and to make sure that our younger ones can actually speak language because, you know, it's really important. So I had to learn it through reading it through the dictionary and listening to her tapes. So once I got over that initial shock of hearing her because she had passed you know three years um, beforehand so to hear her voice again was a little bit confronting um, but I knew that I had to push through it to hear exactly how to say the the words correctly and then through my work with the Yamaji Language Centre and Irrawonga I was able to work with with Wadri speakers as well so really asking them how they would pronounce words but also you know going back to the tapes. Mulgana woman Pat Oakley began learning the language with some family members several years ago for a major event commemorating the area's history. The Shire approached us and sort of said, well, you know, can you do something? And at that time we had attended the language workshops. My brother was with his beautiful voice and he'd been learning guitar for some time but didn't really tell anyone (laughs) what he was doing. He wrote Yandani and we all learnt to perform that, but um, using someone else's, a Noongar woman's melody, but translated Mulgana words to it, and we performed that for the first time here, which um, for us was telling people, well, Mulgana people were the first people here, and um, we're still here, and we're still trying to keep culture alive. Since losing my mum and my brother, who were strong in leading in, you know, uh, culture and cultural knowledge transfer, um, I feel like I have now been left this 
um, legacy to continue. I feel it's my obligation. I think we all have an obligation to do something to carry culture and continue that. So having this as our third on-country Mulgana language learning experience and to see so many community people here is really heartening for me. And hearing these young people, the yumbas, get their tongue around some of these difficult words was really inspiring for me. And, um, yeah, I, I feel hope. I think there's hope that this will continue on and there'll be more and more people coming to share culture, learn about our culture, we can share culture and um, move forward together. That was Mulgana woman Pat Oakley wrapping up that story from Rosemary Murphy in Shark Bay in WA. A group of former military men are helping other veterans find new purpose after their defence service through farming. They're growing avocados and ginger. Landline reporter Courtney Wilson has this story. Angelo Leonardi appreciates the value of a hard day's work. One of my favourite things to do is just pruning. Taking pruning shears, take a pole, chainsaw and just going for the day. Or I don't have my phone, no one can call me and it, I find that really soothing. There is perhaps no more routine-driven workforce than where he began his working life, in the military. I joined in 2006. Being a, a second-generation Australian, it was something that I wanted to do for family reasons as well as at the time there was a need. I had an awesome career. I, I was very fortunate to serve in um, East Timor and in, in Iraq and in Afghanistan and served some awesome guys. So I was only in for about five years, but it was intense for a short period and became a, a really key chapter of my life, which was character building, but it was just a chapter. After leaving the army in 2011, Angelo faced something many ex-service personnel grapple with. When you leave the army, you have to leave your image at the same time and develop a new image. Some of us joined when we were really young, so you can be a young adult, you know, 25 to 30 years old, and lose that, that image that you did build and have to reintroduce yourself to the world, which can be really hard. Hard, but not impossible, and made much easier when you find something else you're passionate about. For Angelo, who grew up on the land that was always going to be farming. And it was kind of a natural progression for me to get back into farming and I wanted to bring my army friends with me and we've done pretty well so far, staying together. Cherry Creek Estate is near Blackbutt in Queensland's South Burnett. The main game here is avocados. There are about 300 hectares of managed orchards. <laughs> Alongside Angelo is his older brother, Salvatore, who spent 20 years working in the mining industry, and another ex-army mate, Cody Dennis. Angelo's a visionary. He's big picture this, big picture that. I am the little picture guy. I'm the details, pragmatic, more realistic of what's happening here right now at this very moment. Sammy, he's the workhorse. He's the workhorse. Doesn't matter if it's big picture, little picture, he just gets it done. The first year, in their first farm, it was just the three boys and about 2,000 trees. We harvested 72 tonnes and we just did it ourselves in between work and other jobs. Fast forward to now and they've acquired half a dozen farms. The three men have around an 80% share with the remaining 20% split across a group of other veterans. 
From 72 tonnes of avocados in that first season, this year they're on track to harvest around 1,000 tonnes. To say it's been a steep learning curve is putting it mildly. Curve is a strong word. I would say vertical ascent it's been. Not to mention a huge change from the army. Cody Dennis, like many other former military personnel, found himself at a loss after leaving. Getting straight out of a combat corps, I couldn't think of what I wanted to do or, or didn't realise the skill sets I had. Couldn't even get a job as a security guard at a shopping centre. Now, Cody oversees the packing shed. It's a big, busy job. At the peak of their season, he manages up to 20 staff. We would have had around a semi-truck a day leaving full of packed fruit. Approximately 80 to 90 bins of avocados were picked per day. So, yeah, it was quite busy. That's Cody Dennis ending that report from Courtney Wilson. And to see more on that story, tune into Landline on ABC TV this Sunday from 12.30 or you can catch it on ABC iView. And finally, here on Australia Wide, let's head to WA, where one woman is taking the phrase to get back on the horse, very literally. Less than four weeks after a second leg amputation, Susan Wells was back in the saddle. Now, she's a National Reserve Champion in horse riding. From Donnybrook in WA Southwest, reporter Amelia Searson has the story. When you watch Susan Wells ride her horse, you would never think she's had two leg amputations. They keep you going. It's like you've got to have goals with them and it's really helped me get back into life and not sit there and let that take over. Susan's stallion Odie lives on her coach's fruit farm in Donnybrook, located 200 kilometres south of Perth. When it's time to go for a ride, Susan travels to Odie's paddock on a scooter and leads him to the stables, where someone helps her put his saddle and bridle on. We've got a bit of a non-orthodox way of getting on at the moment, but at the end of the arena there's a, a large wall and I just bring the wheelchair up to that and then I stand on my prosthetic leg. And my horse is so amazing that he just stands there so he doesn't move a millimetre. He stands there so well and lets me get on and then off we go. <laughs> In 2018, Susan suffered an infection in the bone of her foot. Despite 12 surgeries over three years, she had to get her right lower leg amputated. I was in hospital and my coach Sharon, she come into hospital and she's like, right, when are you getting back on your horse? And I'm like, this is the person I need around me. This is the person that's going to give me that positive push forward. It only took Susan eight weeks to get back on her horse. My husband and another mate helped me get on and they're like, yeah, but we're walking with you. We're walking around the arena with you. And I'm like, oh, if you can keep up. <laughs> but less than two years after her right leg was amputated, Susan's resilience was tested again. Earlier this year, an infection spread in the bottom of her other foot and turned into septicemia a life-threatening blood condition. It wasn't getting any better and so they decided that it was the best way forward. Giving my lifestyle in that or else I'd spend another five years having bits of my foot removed to have it amputated. This time it took her less than four weeks to get back on her horse, Odie. Susan says even though it didn't take her as long to start riding after her second amputation compared to her first, the process was more difficult because she no longer had a proper leg for support. At first you're like, 
oh my god how am i going to do this because it's like standing on the edge of a jetty and you're just about to launch onto a boat and you've got that gap of water in between and you're like am i going to fall in that gap but you just sort of hold your breath and take a leap of faith the bond susan shares with odie is clear being an able-bodied person most of my life and then becoming disabled um, and then riding a horse you don't feel disabled you feel like you're just like everyone else yes better feel the reaction yeah sharon jarvis coaches para riders like susan and has represented australia at the paralympics three times she says building mental strength is just as important as physical strength when horse riding after a trauma I know what it takes to get back on a horse and work through the nerves of getting back on and things like that. Understanding that it's an absolute inner strength that it takes to do what you do. Yes, you might be missing a limb, but there's so much more to your body that you can use. After her second amputation earlier this year, Susan was nervous about the National Dressage Championships her and Sharon had been planning to enter. Fortunately, you know, I've been able to have Sharon help me with a lot of that. She's very experienced. The pair travelled thousands of kilometres over to rural Victoria in October and Susan became the National Reserve Champion. Looking to the future, Susan says the sky is the limit. I just live for riding and riding my horse. I don't want to do anything else. I mean, if you know, a good lotto win would be good and then I can just play horses all day. And thanks to reporter Amelia Searson for that story from Donnybrook in WA South. And that is Australia Wide for this week. I'm Alex Hyman. Have a wonderful weekend. Cheerio. ABC Listen.